today's uh, verses, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are five weeks away, Revive, um, from presenting our church to our community. And uh, so we're doing one more series in preparation for the kind of church that God wants us to be. And um, this is a series that I've entitled Disciples of All Nations. And it means um, there's a play on all those. It's that, that we will be disciples drawn from the nations. We will seek people to be disciples from all the nations. And we're going to spend some thick time in really one of the most important passages in the whole Bible, um, in Matthew chapter 28, right there toward the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus uh, gives a command. This command, um, which has famously been called the Great Commission. He says these, uh, these remarkable words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Has been given to our president. <laughs> it has been given to the richest person on the planet. It's been given to Jesus. And um, I know it doesn't really seem like that because like the world is run by all kinds of other things, politics and power and money and all these things. But Jesus says, actually, all things under heaven and earth has been given to him. And then to those who follow him, and so these are the disciples. And then what he says to the disciples is a word for all disciples, for all the followers of Jesus. He gives this word, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That has been known as the Great Commission. And we're going we're gonna to sit on that um, for the next several weeks. Um, for this is, a, this is the, everything about what our church is going to be about, right? And uh, so let's get into it. In today's message, I've entitled Disciples Impacting the Nations, Part 1, Religion, Culture, and the nations. I want to talk a little bit about this question. In America, in kind of this particular period of Western history, we have a lot of, um, I don't know, we have a lot of confusions about the, the um, relationship of religion and culture, and even inside the church, uh, kind of mistaken understandings how we should think about the, the relationship of, relation, of religion and culture, and particularly um, you know, how Christianity should operate inside that. So that's what we're going to talk about that in part one. In part two, Loving the nations of Silicon Valley. That's what our church is going to be about. Loving not just the Christians, not just your friends, but loving the nations of this place, okay? And I want to close by talking about the gospel in a way that I'm going to say, from lost strangers to sons and daughters. Because that's the story we want people to see. And that's the story that we want to see experience in this church again and again and again, where people are far away and lost will instead join the family of God, become sons and daughters of the, of the Father through Jesus, his son, okay? So um, I'd like to start, um, let me start with a quote. Um, this, is from, this is from the great uh, pastor and preacher, John Piper, and he wrote a book 
on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad. And there's this famous phrase that he says in that first chapter, and it says something like this. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Yet missions exist because worship doesn't. You get it? Now, now what he means by that worship of the true God doesn't exist. Uh, there's all kinds of worship. Everybody worships. Whatever you consider the, the, the biggest, most important thing in your life that's going to save your life. If you think money's going to save your life, that's what you worship. If you think beauty is going to save your life, that's what you worship. If you think status is going to save your life, that's, that's, you worship that even though you don't go to a church called that. You just, that's what you bow down to. But worship of the true God where there's real everlasting life. And in this sense, the church must always be missional until worship covers the whole earth. Worship of Jesus covers the whole earth. This is what it's going to be about. And where's the places where most of the people don't worship? It's really, well, throughout the nations. And especially, um, you know, when, when, just think, I want you to just think about this for a little bit. When Jesus gave this command, it, was, it must have been completely insane. <laughs> You're 11, I mean, you know, this is uh, the 11 disciples. Judas had uh, killed himself at this point. They're gathered together. Jesus gives this commission and then he says, you're going to go and baptize out of every nation. Go do that. And then cause them to remember everything that I've taught you. And then obey me, follow me, go do that. So just think about this. When this command was given, you're 11 Jewish guys. <laughs> Even the people inside your own nation, like follow who? 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 What are you talking about? We're going to follow that guy. He has the highest authority. What are you talking about? Um, wasn't he just crucified a little while ago? He, he's a horrible criminal and we all despise him. And it was a completely insane thing to say. Now we as, you know, 2,000 years later, Christians go, okay, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we know. It has become, in a sense, just a piece of scripture. But I want to just start to begin to help you to wrestle with what Jesus is saying. Even when Jesus said it was completely an insanely radical thing. You're going to go out there to the nations and the Jews, this is the way they looked at them. They're like, we're the special people chosen by God. And then there's this term that we all know called Gentiles. Do you know what Gentiles actually literally means? It means the nations. Hmm. Let's put it a little bit differently. Go, therefore, and make, make disciples of all the Gentiles. Jews don't hang out with Gentiles. Jews don't even eat with Gentiles. That's really what he's telling them to do. You understand that's what he's telling them to do? He's saying, take the thing that you... You are totally not used to. You're completely used to being inside your own racial, ethnics, and religious segregation. And I'm telling you, go break all that. Go out and make disciples of all the nations, all the Gentiles. That's what he's teaching. So, you know this command, um, I'm saying this to you today, and we're talking about reaching the nations in Silicon Valley. And look, I'm not naive, Okay. I know some of you are sitting there going like, yeah, is that really going to happen, Pastor? Okay, you know, like, I like this church. And, you know, I kind of, like, know what the majority ethnic makeup is inside of here. And isn't that just kind of the way we're going to be? I mean, that's kind of the way it works, isn't it? Right? And um, let me just give you a little pushback here. This is not my idea. <laughs> this is not my idea. This isn't like Susan came up with some cute plan. And some people really think, 
that um, churches wanting to become multi-ethnic, like this is some kind of like American racial guilt thing. Because like in America, there's so much like racial and ethnic segregation. And therefore, you know, in America, we really want to be really out of the plural, e pluribus. We really want to become the unum. And since, you know, we're not really good at the unum because of racial, se you know, segregation, you know, America has this deep guilt about becoming multi-ethnic. And like, so since, um, you know, churches need to become more hip and better Americans, you know, we, we, we were interested in multi-ethnicity. That, that's really our real motivation, right? Wrong. Let me tell you something. Long before America ever felt guilty about racial segregation, Jesus was pushing this button. Before anybody ever even thought it could happen, and I'm not even sure how many of these 11 guys told this, what if you were sitting here with some skepticism that our church could reach the nations of our city, um, well, I'm not too worried about that because out of the 11 guys that Jesus told this to, you know how many of them did this after he told them to do it? Let me tell you how many of them did it. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> and they followed him for three years, and then later on they did it. Well, they didn't do it. So you get to the book of Acts that records the story of the early church, and you know what they did? They began, I mean, they began to reach the Jews. And that's great that they reached the Jews because the Jews didn't want to believe a man could be, actually be God, so even that's miraculous. So then a, a megachurch explodes in the middle of Jerusalem, and then... Some of the Jews that have more culture in, in, in other non-Jewish cultures, they start coming to Jesus. So they're called the Hellenistic Jews. And then, you know what happens? So remember, everybody in the church is Jewish. They're all ethnically Jewish, but some are culturally less Jewish. They're not Palestinian Jewish. They're more kind of Hellenistic Jewish. You know what started happening? Cultural, ethnic, in, intro fighting started happening in the church. That's what started happening. Everybody the same ethnicity. But the culture is different. And so, you know, how, you know how the Lord got them to obey this, this command? He gave them this command before he, he ascends. And then, by the way, he repeats it again in Acts chapter 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, you know, and then like throughout the nations to the ends of the earth. That's what he tells them. That's, that's what's going to happen. And then they don't do it. And you know how he got them to do it? This is how he got them to do it. He allowed persecution to come, and one of their best guys named Stephen was murdered and stoned. And then you know what happened? Then that church, they scattered. <laughs> That's how they did it. Then they scattered, went to all these other cities, and then some of these Jewish Christians go to the city. It started in Antioch. This is recorded in Acts chapter 11. They go to Antioch. Then they start sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. Finally, they start doing it, and some of them start getting saved. And then you know what it did? It actually caused a controversy inside the church. So it isn't just like, okay, they were also holy, and they knew everything back then. They, they knew how to do everything. They didn't. And yet God still made it happen. Brothers and sisters, you know, it, if you don't believe in it, I don't know if God's going to just have one of us get killed. <laughs> I don't know what he's going to need to do. But this is his will. This is what he's, he's he, this is going to happen. And so if you're a doubter of this happening in our church, um, I, 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 hey guys, I'm, I'm, it's not like I'm going to have super faith. On Monday I wake up, 
and I believe this. On Tuesday, I wake up and I don't, <laughs> all right? But it's Sunday, so I believe it and so I can preach it to you and then tomorrow I'll be a doubter, okay? Now, I wanna tell, tell you a story which I picked up. John Piper, same preacher, he gave a final sermon. So, um, you know, he's getting more toward retirement and um, their church, they're famously known, he's famously the lead pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church and they have this uh, global missions conference. And he even says, we're not just a church, we're a global missions agency. That's the way he called their church. Isn't that an incredible vision? And um, in his final sermon, he kind of told, he started with this. So in 1890, so I think he gave this, uh, um, he gave this in, in the 90s, okay, in the 1990s. Sorry. In 1890, no, this wasn't in this wasn't in this was in 2012 or so, right? In 1890, Bethlehem Baptist Church, which was a 29-year-old Swedish Baptist church at the time, sent Minnie and Ola Hansen from our own membership to an unreached people group in Burma called the Kachin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but let's just call them the Kachin, all right? They were known as vengeful, cruel, and treacherous. The king of Burma declared to Hansen when he got there. So you are to teach the Kachins? Do you see my dogs over there? I tell you, it will be easier for you to convert and teach these dogs you're wasting your life. That's what he told the, uh, the Hansons, these beautiful Christians in 1890 out of Minnesota, right? The Kachins were completely illiterate with no written language. Over the next 30 years, Hansons collected, Hanson collected 25,000 words and published a Kachin English dictionary. So you just think missionaries, uh, you know, they just sit around and just pray. <laughs> he, he, he built a whole dictionary. In 1911, Hansen finished translating the New Testament. And on August 11th, 1926, he completed the Old Testament. In a letter on August 14th of that year, Hansen wrote, It is with heartfelt gratitude that I lay this work at the feet of my master. I'm conscious of the defects of my work. I have tried to master catching and make a translation and intelligible to all. Pray with us that our divine master, so he's talking about his master, the king. He said, our divine master may bless this work to the salvation of the whole Kachin race. Today, 2012, virtually all Kachin can read and write their own language as well as Burmese, the national language, and there are over a half million Kachin Christians. That's the story. It's an incredible story, isn't it? Let me tell you something. This is not some unusual thing that God does. This is what he does. <laughs> this is what he does. And um, one of the things I want to say in our church is this is what we're, we're about, this thing that God does. We're not trying to invent something new and be something special on our own. What, what makes us special, if we're special by doing this, is to do the, th the special things that God does. <laughs> and here's the incredible thing. Here's the incredible thing. Um, in 1890, if you wanted to reach the Kachins, you had to go there. <laughs> you had to go there. Um, in 2019, you don't have to go there. You know what they do? They come here. I'll tell you a story. In, um, I think it was about 2006 or so. 
My wife and I were um, attending a church in Philadelphia. You know, I've, you know, this beloved church, New Life Presbyterian Church of Glenside. This is when I was working on my PhD studies in systematic theology. We had a speaker, and um, he talked about uh, he talked about how the world is changing. And he said he talked. Everybody talks about globalization and how the world is getting smaller and all the cultures are starting to mix together because of global economy. He said, but this is actually far more important for the sake of the eternal kingdom. He said, if you back then, if you wanted to reach, so he, I think he said like North Africa, you would have to send people from our church to North Africa. They'd have to learn the language. I mean, you know, get visas, all this stuff. You could get, they, it was dangerous, utterly uproot their life. He says, but today, and you know, where this is Philadelphia, he goes, we have North African missionaries right here in our city. And if you want to reach North Africa, you don't have to go to North Africa. You just reach them right in our city. And then when they get saved, then they go home to visit their relatives and the gospel will reach their nation. That's what he put it. And I remember when he said this, I remember sitting there and I just, I almost started bawling. Because as a boy growing up in a Korean-American Presbyterian church, I always thought that we were these weird, you know, Christians. <laughs> and we, I grew up in the Bay Area, so it's a pretty, you know, pagan place. Even back then, it was a lot more Christian back then, actually, in, in, in the late 70s and in the 80s, although still pretty pagan. And I always thought, well, this is the thing that we do. And then, and then as I grew older, I realized there's this much bigger Christian world out there, especially in America, and I always felt like we were this, this, little, this little group of Koreans were, you know, operating inside this little ethnic ghetto called the church. And all the really cool stuff was happening in, you know, the American Christians out there really out making all this big difference. And I always felt like, you know, my world was in this little world. Um, but I listened to this preacher and he completely took my whole understanding of the immigrant church and completely flipped it on its head. He just pretty much said, as soon as I heard him say that, I just realized that if you grew up in a monoculture, so I'm not trying to, you know, like knock anybody here, but if you're like a white American and you live in like white America and everybody you know is white and like there's like nobody else who's not white or from another nation in your town, which like lots of places in America are like this, right? And you don't have to go very far. I mean, you just drive a little further out, you get to Gilroy, you get into, the, I mean, it's now, now you're in America, Right? And um, you're actually at a huge disadvantage. The, co the, the country is a lot, it's a lot more Christian out there in terms of people who believe in Jesus. But in terms of reaching the nations, you're at a huge disadvantage. But if you grow up in, a, in an immigrant church and you understand this cross-cultural dynamic, and then you know there's people on the other side of the town and they don't know Jesus, you are at so much more of an advantage being able to reach them. You know that? And I sat there, and I almost started crying. And I said, Lord, if you ever send me back to full-time ministry, this is what I want to do. This is the way I want our church to be. I want us to stop thinking about the immigrant church as being inside this little ethnic ghetto, and then all that we, you know, we got to get together here because we don't have any other friends outside of our circles. And so since we're going to make friends, we got to make friends inside of our homeboys. And so the church is going to be this little club for us. And, you know, everybody else is, you know, they're out they're dying because they don't know Jesus. But what he said was, if you do this thing, you will start a movement like this. You start a movement like this. 
You don't have to go to Burma to start the movement where a half million people believe in Jesus a, couple of, a few generations. I actually think everything is accelerating. It won't take 100 years for a half million people of another nation to believe in Jesus. It'll probably take about 30. Because, <laughs> you know, I don't know if you know this, but in Africa and in South America and throughout Asia, people are coming to Jesus in droves. And everything is crazy accelerating with the way, you know, news and media and all these things are going out. Well, I'll give you a picture of what our church is going to be about. Now, I want to say a couple other things before I move on. I want to say a couple things. Um, you know, America, we have this habit, you know, and I'm kind of already starting to get at it, of, of racial, ethnic, I call it market segmentation of the church. America invented free market Christianity. Do you know that? American Christianity, like, is built on, like, free markets. Like, all right, you, you want to do the Baptist thing? Okay, you go do the Baptist thing. Right? Oh, you want to do the, the Korean Presbyterian thing? You go do the Korean. You want to do the, you know, you want to do the Mexican, you know, like Pentecostal thing? You do that. It's like, it's like segmented according to different styles of Christianity. The Episcopalians, you know, there's an old joke. You know, what, what, what is a, I don't, okay, I thought this doesn't offend anybody, but like my, 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 my Baptist friend told me this joke. He says, what, what is a Methodist? It's, it's a Baptist who can read. <laughs> and what is a Presbyterian? It's a Methodist who has a better stock portfolio? <laughs> and what is an Episcopalian? It's a Presbyterian who has a better stock portfolio. <laughs> so it was like, you know, that's an old joke in America that essentially God broke the churches up and they all could reach different segments of the population, the richer segments, different ethnicities and so forth. And there's a lot of truth to that. But America's had a history of saying, you know, your people over there, the black church over there, and, you know, the rich church over here and the white people over here and the Koreans over here and the Chinese folks. You know, we have this. And, you know, there, it's, it's actually, it's a, real, it's a really powerful thing. If you segment the market to make it comfortable for a very, you know, this is how you, you, think, you think companies know how to target you. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> and the church, in a sense, has gotten kind of good at this. But... I would like to propose to you, it's, uh, there's a huge downside to this thing. What started to happen is, um, it's funny, America has had this view for the longest time that, that faith and religion transcends culture, especially Christianity. But now, as we're starting to become a post-Christian society, more and more people just think religion is just culture. That's all it is. It's just a function of culture. And this generation... You know what people see? This younger, this like millennials and down, millennials and younger. The X generation kind of started to believe this, but millennials are really starting to believe this. And uh, this is an attitude that I've come across a lot that um, really, you know, why are there lots, why are lots of uh, people in the, in the heartland still going to church? Well, because that, that's, it's, a white, it's a white American thing. <laughs> it's a white American thing. You know, I, I remember um, about, uh, about 10 years or so, I, I met a guy who used to grow up in a Korean church. And they went off to college and stopped believing in Jesus. And then, you know, his mom, you know, went to like the Korean speaking side of the church that we were planted out of. And then he had come, he was like, uh, it was like, he talked to me like it's a quaint thing that I used to do when I used to go to church. And so I'm back. And while we were talking, I go, so what do you think this is about? 
And he said, if it's not just about God, you know, this is, this really kind of blew me on my wine. This is a millennial smart guy. You know, he said to me, he goes, oh, I think it's just a Korean thing. <laughs> and I was just like, Christianity is a Korean thing. <laughs> I was sitting there going like, whoa. I, I remember just being kind of flabbergasted when he said that to him. Like, what do you say to that? <laughs> what do you say to that? And so many churches, you know, we're all, we're all kind of blind about this. You know, culture is very, very thick. And um, culture is not, you know, there's a lot of things that we do kind of automatically without thinking, it's kind of invisible. It's like tasteless. <laughs> it just doesn't have no odor, but it's like there, right? That's kind of like our culture is, right? You get in a group of people and whatever the dominant culture is, it's there. It's just there, right? And um, except that if you are on the outsider of it, you just, you know, it's, you're not in it. And what we need to do is when people come in and they start thinking like they immediately think, oh, this is, a, this is a white people thing or this is a Korean thing. You know what? They're really not picking up the real truth, which is that the gospel, look at the, look at the word. It is above all cultures. He's above all nations. And he intends to make a family of all nations. And this is command. And uh, we must, you know, there's no, there's no like, you can't just get rid of your culture but you can find inside ways to say this part is a stumbling block to the gospel. This part, every culture has something beautiful. And every culture has things that are ugly. And what are the parts that we can present, that we can have repentance inside of these cultures? And you know, and, and, and in a community like this, it's, it's actually even more difficult and strange. Because there's not like one culture, you're like, oh, we're, there's Koreans here, and then there's like American culture. No, it's actually much more confusing than that. You got like the Koreans thinking they're really Korean, but they're not really, really Korean. You got like Chinese folks in this church that really like K-drama. And then you got like the Korean-American, you know, who wishes he was black. And, you know, I like to tell people I'm like 35% Korean and like 50% like white. And the rest of me is like wannabe Mexican. That's what I like to tell people. Because like when I lived in the Mexican theme dorm in college, I just loved that culture. You know, I was, I kind of was just like, I was kind of born in the wrong culture. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, didn't you kind of pick the wrong culture for me here? And, um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's so much more. And like, this is part of America now. America is a culture that's like a, a mishmash of all these cultures. And if they can't find that there is a Lord that can heal all cultures, this is the kind of church that's needed. <laughs> Let's go to part two. I want to talk about um, loving the nations of Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, you, you and I know that there's, like, they come here, <laughs> especially from Asia. I often like to think um, you got New York on the East Coast, and, you know, all the nations are there, but especially from Europe, right? But we're on the West Coast, and, you know, it just makes sense that a lot more of the Asians will come on this side, and they do, right? And I don't know if it's just because you know, our, our, our technology industries attract more of them or, or something like that. And that's, part, I'm sure, a part of it. But, um, man, this, the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, um, I, you know, I, I, it just always astonishes me when I look at the numbers. Sunnyvale, this, this city, right, this city, um, this city is 60% Asian. Do you know that? 
If you walk around Sunnyvale, you don't think it's 60% Asian. You think it's more like 80% Asian. Um, I live in Cupertino. They say it's 75% Asian and 25% like, well, like 23% white and 2% other or something like this. And when I walk around Cupertino, I'm like, where are the white people? <laughs> it's 75% Asian. Isn't it more like 95% Asian? As it feels like that. And, um, and we're going to reach the nations. They're going to come here and... And some of you are saying, they're like, oh, come, that's really great and grandiose. How are you going to do that, Pastor? How are we going to do that, Pastor? And I'll, I'll, I'm not going to give you my opinion. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you something out of the Bible. Because this is the Bible, you know, this, the, Jesus, this is like, if you read the Bible, Jesus gives this command, they don't do it. Until Acts chapter, well, until, you know, S Stephen gets killed. So you get to Acts, Stephen gets killed, and you get to Acts chapter 11. Now it's finally happening. It's finally starting to happen in Acts chapter 11. So, um, but there's other interesting stories, and this is how Jesus does. So I want, I want to tell you, so if you get to Acts chapter 16, and I won't make you all, I'll just tell you the story. There's a really interesting um, verse. In Acts chapter 16, I'll just read it out loud so you can start to follow this, and you have to piece this uh, together. It's because it's not like one little narrative. You have to kind of piece it together as you're looking at this, uh, this question of culture and cross-cultural and reaching the nations. In Acts chapter 16, at the beginning, it says, Paul came to Derby and to Lystra. So these are totally Gentile cities. It's like right in the Roman Empire. And these are like super major cities, but they're, you know, I, I tend to think of Lystra as like, not like a super major city, but it'd be like Fremont or something like that, okay? But a real city. And um, a disciple was there. So this guy's always following, his name is Timothy. Timothy is the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, not a believer. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra in Iconium. And then Paul makes a very special relationship with this young man named Timothy. And then Timothy starts going on the missionary and church planting journeys with Paul. And Timothy becomes one of the most important leaders of the early church. Um, tradition has it that, I, I don't know if it's, I guess it's history, Sometimes I'm not sure where there's tradition and where there's history, but he was known as um, the Bishop of Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus is like the, one of the most important churches. And, I don't have, and then if you go to another place, this is a place where I, I've, I've preached on this. This is a really important verse, I think, for our church. It's 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And then Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's writing from prison. And he says this, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. <laughs> so this is how it happens. So Timothy wasn't just a straight pagan. <laughs> there was some kind of spiritual heritage, and the truth of the gospel is there in his family. And I don't know if he became a believer through his mom or his grandmother, but it was there but then when he finally meets Paul, Paul is the one who lights him up and raises him up into leadership, and he becomes this unbelievable leader. And then Paul is, Paul dies a martyr's death, but who's the one that completely just unleashes the gospel to, to those people? It's Timothy. It's Timothy. Not Paul the Jew, but Timothy of Derby and Lystra, just explodes. He is the leader that influences others that starts to explode the gospel. Now, just, just, now this is a first century story. Now, I'm just like, uh, think, 
you're sitting there going like, well, that's a really interesting Bible study, Pastor. You know, is it? What I want you to understand is this isn't just a first century story of something that happened in history. This is God's way. <laughs> this is what God does. Now, when it says you will go out and make the disciples, is it talking about you, John, or you, or you? It's not, it's not like as an individual. We, you know, sometimes we read the Bible so individualistically, but God is, you know, God's son here is saying you, you the group, you the collective, you my people, my disciples, together go and do this. So let me give you a different example, one that's a little bit closer to, to our, our world here. So out of the church that planted us, which was San Jose New Hope, there was um, a, 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 um, for about nine years or so, we went to a Native American reservation to reach. There's a, re a reservation out in Bishop, California. It's filled with Paiute Shoshone Native Americans. And we went them to try to reach them for Jesus and help. But you see, before we got there, see, before Paul got there, the gospel already had gotten there before he got there. <laughs> and when we got there, you know, they, 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 some of them had already heard the gospel. And so we started doing this, you know, gospel mission stuff on the reservation. And you know, some of the people who start to really be attracted to us, I'll give you an example of somebody. It's really interesting to see. I actually would just look at the number of people who be somewhere usually along the line, some of them, somewhere in there, there was some kind of spiritual thickness. And it wasn't, it was not unlike this. So um, there's a young man, I'll give you an example. There's a young man who's really close to our church and his faith is serious and solid. And, um, you know, we baptized him actually last summer. His name's Mike, Michael Barros. He's a junior. His, his father is Michael Barros Sr., right? Michael is, uh, what is he, 14 now? He's, I think he's 14, but when we met him, he was a lot younger. And uh, he's super close to, to Damon. I mean, I, I, when I see him hang out with Damon, I just think of Damon as like, his spiritual father. Damon is basically Paul. And Michael is basically Timothy on that reservation. And if you get to know their story, it gets, it gets really, really interesting. So I'm close to Michael too. Michael's father and mother. So his mother, she doesn't believe in Jesus. She doesn't go to church. And his father, for most of his life, he absolutely rejected Jesus and really believed in the Indian ways and used to go, you know, do the, the Indian religious practices. Although um, not long ago, um, you know, he always had like issues with alcohol and drugs and stuff like that. And not long ago, he became a Christian, a very, very serious one at that. So it's an incredible story. And I used to think, uh, you know, Michael, like why, why, why is he attracted to us, right? And what you'd see is, and what I found out is like, it took me a while, it took me several years, and then I met his grandmother. Hmm. And I found his, his grandmother's a woman named Gail Manriquez, and she really loves the Lord. <laughs> you know who uh, Michael's Lois is? It's Gail, <laughs> right? Michael's Lois is Gail. In Timothy's case, his mother Eunice is a believer, but in Michael's case, his mother is not a believer, but his father now is a believer, <laughs> And you know, this is the kind of thing that's going to happen. This is the kind of thing that's going to happen. I think it gets really, really interesting, right? There are going to be people who just get straight, straight up saved out of whatever pagan, you know, background or secular atheistic background. That's going to happen. And that's happened for us on the reservation too. And then that happens in the Bible too. But also, often 
this is really, really interesting. Someone's going to come in and um, the one that's going to make the difference is going to be like the son or the grandson or the granddaughter or the grand, you know, or the daughter of somebody. And we think about this thing. You know, we must operate in faith. We're Americans. We love numbers. We love the quantitative and we love success and we love fast success. Do this, you get this result. You know, all the business cycles. Oh, okay, we ran this thing two quarters later. Is it successful? Oh, it's not successful. Let's shut it down. Three quarters later. Is it successful? Oh, okay, forget it. Let's just shut it down. That's how we think. But, this, it's, but God's way, it's, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes when I, when I go out to the reservation unit, I'm thinking, I used to wonder why we were out there. And then when I would see Michael light up in faith, and then you know, Michael brought his sisters. And because Michael is like, his life is changing with lots of joy, guess what? His sisters are changing. And then they're going to say, Jesus, yeah, I'm into Jesus. And they are. And you know his mother, she doesn't believe in Jesus. But when we come out there and we want to show love to Michael and his sisters, his, his mother is always saying, sure, you can take my son. You can take my daughters. Go do it. And I just think, what will Michael be like when he's 25 and 35 and 45? He'll probably be the elder of his church. <laughs> He'll probably be discipling somebody. And hopefully it'll be Paiutes and Shoshones. And that nation will be reached. You see how this works? Now I want to say one more thing before I go to the close of my message. Um, there's something very important that's happening in our church that a lot of you don't know about. And so we've been, I've been waiting for an appropriate time to sort of like let, let, um, let you out. I'm just going to just give you a little bit about it. It's a huge thing that's happening in our church, and we haven't um, let you know about it yet. At least the most of you don't know about it yet. You may have heard some news about this, but it's deliberate. Um, there's a movement that's in our church that we call Life on Life Missional Discipleship, or LOLMD for short. And um, a couple years ago, Pastor Young and I were thinking like, we need... We need a way to make disciples. We have to obey Matthew chapter 28. And there's all kinds of like different methods and stuff out there, but we're looking for the way that we thought would really work in our church, the one that we thought was really deeply biblical and empowered by grace, and this is it. And so the people who train us, it was started in a church in Atlanta called Perimeter Church, and um, it's very high commitment, <laughs> very high relationship. And it's not a program. That's why we didn't advertise it. That's why I even told you. We don't want you to like go, oh, it's a program. I want to sign up for it. No, no, it's not. it doesn't work like that. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. We want to start with a few and ask a few and select according to le each discipling leader has to prayerfully think about who they're going to ask to grow thick. And we have to ask you if you have really, really high commitment. I mean, it's, it's serious. It's, it's like... It's, it's almost crazy in Silicon Valley to ask you for this much, the sheer amount of time, the amount of homework, the amount of time we spend together. And it's also highly, highly missional, life on life. It's a life. So how Jesus lives, the, the, the brothers that I'm going to, so it's men with men and women with women. And, and then, then after like three years of training, the, the ideal time is three, could, could, could come be a little faster if somebody's, you know, ahead of the curve. And then we launch you out, and then you go seek more. And over time, you know what we've heard from churches that have done this? 
This is you go seek one or two or three. Do you, you want to meet Jesus? You, you could start with someone who just got saved. And they could be from another nation. And then they start, we start to replicate this pathway. So there's something really, really important and exciting that's happening in our church. I know we've shared a little bit about this. And um, you can go around and ask who's doing it. We're not trying to hide this. It wasn't like some like secret club. Only the cool people get to do this. It's for both mature Christians and for, you know, like baby starting Christians. And it's just up to each of the disciples to like see who the Lord is calling them to. And this is an important movement that's happening in our church. But we see all of this happening. Following, seeking the nations. And, um, and over time, I can't wait to see who the Lord's going to lead me to disciple and what they're going to do 5, 10, 15 years later and what nations are going to be reached because we obeyed this, right? All right, I want to close by talking about, I want to give you a verse from Ephesians chapter 2, right? So I want to, this is not like some American thing or we're interested in cross-cultural because of America. This is, this is what, this is the kind of family God wants. Jesus is looking for this. He's calling us to do this thing and, and I'm not naive. I know you know it's hard. We know it's hard. We're not really good at cross-cultural, all right? <laughs> Nobody's really good at it, but if there's anybody good at it, you're good at it, <laughs> You're living in the city of the cross-cultural. You're living in the city where some of you think you're Korean, but you're probably more Chinese than Korean, right? Some of you think you're, you know, you're Chinese, but you love, like, you know, Mexican stuff. I mean, this, you, you guys are good at it. And you have your friends. And the next cubicle over is somebody from South India, and this guy's your buddy, right? And can you begin to dream? that he can know Jesus. Maybe he will know Jesus and he will start, but then, then he'll come into the church and he'll be his son. That'll be the Timothy for his people. You get it? And I'll just close by talking about Jesus. Jesus lived in a culture. So he did this twice. In my view, when I look at the Bible, he crossed cultures twice. First, he lived in a perfect culture. Nobody sins, nobody lies, nobody's racist. That's called heaven. And he said, but his father said, I want you to go reach them because I want them to be in my family. And so he became a human being. He went to a whole nother nation, a whole nother culture. He actually went to the nation that was chosen by God and he became Jewish and they rejected him. And he sought them for heaven. And they rejected him. And then he opened it all up for all the nations. And then he began to reach the nations. And then he ordered his disciples here, go reach the nations. And he would pay any cost. Indeed, he paid the cost. So this is how it's put in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember at one time, you, the Gentiles, you, the nations in the flesh, you're called the uncircumcision, which the Jews means you're out there, you're lost. You're outside of promise. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. 
You had no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, you were far off. You were aliens. You were lost. But now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He didn't just do it by a word. He did it with his blood. He laid down his life and he spilled out his life through his blood so that he could reach us who were very, very far off. He could cover up over our sins and he could give us grace where we, deceive, where we deserve condemnation. He gave us grace. And when we deserve to be excluded, he said, I include you. I don't just include you into this commonwealth. I give you all my name and all my rights. And you don't just get to be a citizen, you get to be a son and you get to be a daughter because the son paid the price so we can gain his sonship. We can become sons and daughters of the ultimate family made up of all the nations. This is what he did for us. Brothers and sisters, today I want to just ask you, can you just think about that? You know, it's not by grace. It's not going to be how good we are. I mean, they didn't know how to do it. <laughs> they didn't know how to do it, and they were bad at it. And we don't, we're not going to be, we don't have to be good at it. But if we would even just have a mustard seed, even a little speck of faith, could you take a look at your friends and all the nations? Just go to work, go to preschool, Go to your school, go to your high school, go to your college, and just look there for a second at all the nations that are there. And then when you're hanging out at work, when you're there eating lunch in the cafeteria on, on Monday with your fellow students, high school guys, or hanging out in class in your colleges, just look at them for a second and just think about this, this command, this commission. And just think that there was once a time we were far off. There was once a time we were far off. And he came to love us and serve us and reach us. And if we would just believe in that and obey that, we will see incredible things happen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, We um, often think so much and we look at the world. We look at the world through our own small lenses. And we think that our life is ruled by our experiences. Our opinions and our experiences are like the word and wisdom that we place above yours. But Lord, if we would just go with you <laughs> and we would trust in you, and if we won't trust in you, I dare say you will break us so that your will be done. I pray, Lord, that you don't have to break us. Instead, that you would bless us. <laughs> and you would give us, you would take our little small seeds of faith and obedience and encourage us, especially in these next five weeks. I pray that we would dare look at some of our coworkers and fellow students and our neighbors, and our friends, and think, may they be the beginning of a nation being reached. Could I be talking to Lois today? Could her grandson be the one that completely revolutionizes people tomorrow? Could I be talking to Eunice today? 
I pray that we would take that step. And in the weeks and the months ahead, you would deeply encourage us that your spirit be so thick among us that Acts chapter 11, where the nation started to be reached, nothing could stop that from happening right here, right here in this room, right here in Sunnyvale, right here at Revive Church. We pray for that. Bless us and be pleased to pour out your spirit on us. In Jesus' name, amen.